We continue our study of Jesus' trial. This now for the third week we've considered him on trial, beginning in verse 13. Hear now the word of God. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. The man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in this city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! And a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were more urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Our Father, we come now and ask that you would work in us just as you are working through us to sacrifice and to give for the cause of Christ's name. And now, uh, Father, we want, to, we want to end this service celebrating the work you've done in our hearts through your word. And perhaps even in your kindness there will be one here or more that would enter in this building not knowing Christ as their Lord and would leave so forgiven by his great mercy. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It was on September 10th in the uh, year 2001 that Steve Scheibner, who was a pastor and also flew for American Airlines on the side, logged into the company website and he saw that a first officer was needed for flight 11 the next day. So he entered his name and, and began to pack that evening for his flight in the morning. And the next day when he got up to go to the airport on September 11th, Steve saw that he was bumped from his flight by Tom McGinnis, who had seniority. Flight 11 took off as scheduled from Boston Logan's uh, Logan Airport and headed to Los Angeles with Tom McGinnis flying instead of Steve Scheibner. As you know, shortly after takeoff, Flight 11 was overtaken by 9-11 terrorists, uh, leading to the death of everyone on board. As he reflected on these events, Scheibner realized that someone else sat in his seat. He would later say to his congregation, I saw where I should have died, but I didn't. Tom sat in the seat I was qualified to sit in. By all rights, that was my seat that day. I should have been there. Tom McGinnis died in the place of Steve Scheibner. Today I want to consider a similar story, 
of one who was destined to die, and yet at the last minute switches places with another. We're here in Luke 23, and we have found in the previous weeks that Jesus has been brought to Pilate by the religious leaders on these trumped-up charges, and Pilate sees right through it. You see in verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priests, I find no guilt in this man, right? He's innocent. That should end the trial, of course, but the people were not deterred, as you see in verse 5, but they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea, throughout all Judea, and from Galilee, even to this place, Well, Pilate recognizes he's from Galilee, and so he tries a different tactic. He sends him off to Herod, who's the tetrarch or the ruler of Galilee. Well, all Herod does is ridicule Jesus and mock him. And and the next thing Pilate knows, Jesus is back on his front porch, and the crowd is growing. And so what is he going to do with Jesus? That's the question that's presented to him. And I think in some ways the question that's presented to you and I What will we do with Jesus? We work our way through this passage. We'll see it uh, unfold before us in in three different scenes, if you will. First of all, a verdict is reached. Secondly, an injustice is committed. And thirdly, a victory is achieved. We see, first of all, that a verdict is reached. Just to lay it out for you, the verdict is Jesus is innocent, as you pick up in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. Uh, he's calling them together in order to end this case. He, as they arrive before him, he reviews the case before them and then declares Jesus acquitted of all charges, as you see in verse 14. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of your charges against him. He's innocent, he says. And by the way, that's not only Pilate's verdict, it's Herod's as well, as you see in verse 15. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us, looking, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So Herod, by the way, doesn't like Jesus at all. We saw that. And yet he found him guiltless. And so you have two men, two Roman rulers, who, by the way, almost never agree on anything, agree on this, that Jesus is innocent. This will be a theme that we find throughout this passage, the innocence of Jesus. We saw it up there in verse 4 where we just saw that Pilate declared him innocent before he went off to Herod. Then he comes back and Pilate declares him innocent once again in verse 14 and he'll do so two more times in verse 20 and then again a fourth time he'll declare him innocent in verse 22 or a third time in this particular trial. In fact, Lucas is keeping count for us as you see in verse 22. A third time he said to him, why, what evil has he done? Jesus is innocent of all these charges. In fact, Jesus, by the way, is innocent of all charges. Every charge that could be lobbied against anyone, Jesus is innocent of. He is the only perfectly innocent person ever to live. In fact, you put all these events together, and he seems to be declared this over and over again, even by his enemies. Consider their testimony. Think about this. First of all, Judas, in Matthew 27, the one who betrayed Jesus, says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Secondly, we find Pilate, as we just observed four times, say, I find no guilt in this man. Third, we have Herod. We read, neither did Herod find guilt. Fourth, if you look at Matthew's account, we find out that Pilate's wife entreated her husband, have nothing to do with that righteous man, she says. Fifth, we will find a dying thief 
who will affirm of Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. Sixth, we'll discover a Roman centurion who confessed certainly this man is innocent. And seventh, those soldiers who were with that centurion acknowledged truly this was the Son of God. No guilt, no guilt, no guilt. So they handed him over to be crucified. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would like you to know that what happened to Jesus is not what happens to us when we are wrongly accused. They're similar, but not the same. The reason is, is because we, everyone, has sinned against God. We all have committed transgression. We have rebellion in our heart. Now, certainly we do good things, but a large part of us serves ourselves. We large part of us, that is, disregards the one who has made us and how he would have us live. Jesus alone is not like this. Jesus alone is the only one who obeyed the Father perfectly and completely. He's completely innocent of every charge. In fact, the Bible says one day he will no longer be on trial, but you and I will be. And we'll stand before him. On that day, we'll come before him. I, I, I tell you, your record of good will be utterly insufficient. I think so many people want to come to him and say, well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and they think that that, that will be enough to atone for the, the transgressions and the sins in which they have committed, and I, I tell you, on that day, you will find you need more, a greater defense than your record of good. You need a Savior, and my prayer is that God would help you find one before it is too late. Jesus Christ is the only one who has been innocent of all charges. He has been declared innocent there. Once again, you think, okay, case closed. Pilate should say, I'll release him immediately. And yet, in his perverse mind, he comes up with this idea in verse 16. I will therefore punish and release him. I, I, <laughs> don't just read by that. That's astonishing. Pilate says, in light of the fact that he has done nothing wrong, let me whip him and release him. Now, the thought into Pilate evidently is, I'll give him a good beating, right? Even though he's innocent, that will satisfy your bloodlust, right? And yet he, he could still go his merry way or limp his merry way. It makes you wonder what kind of man this is that would even contemplate beating an innocent man. And yet this is what Pilate proposes. And even that does not satisfy them. As you consider the injustice, secondly, the injustice that was committed, that Jesus is condemned. Note verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and released to us Barabbas. Now Luke's account is very succinct here. All of a sudden, we're talking about this guy Barabbas. And it's helpful, I think, to consider the other Gospels and to fill in some of the details. That, that at the Passover, which is what, when this event is taking place, there was a tradition developed by the Romans. You see, Passover is a celebration of, of the Jews' redemption from their bondage in Egypt. That God freed them from their uh, captivity and redeemed them. And so in light of that tradition, the Romans had developed a custom on the Passover that they would release one Jewish man who was in chains to kind of symbolize as a, as a way of a, a good token, goodwill, that uh, th there's a, a little tiny Passover taking place, that this man who's in chains is released. Now, the leaders, of course, want Jesus killed. That's why they have brought him here. This is why they're, what, what they're after. But the crowds, remember the crowds. The crowds love Jesus, right? I mean, after all, that's why they had to arrest him at night because they thought, well, the crowds are going to rise up and protect him. There's going to be this massive riot. Things are going to get out of hand. 
In fact, even notice the charge they bring against Jesus up in verse 5. It says, but they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. You see, even they recognize that the crowds love him. The crowds are on Jesus' side. And, and so you have the religious leaders versus the crowds. And so Pilate's going to come, and he's going to ask, okay, crowd, which prisoner should I release? I have to release one. Would you like Jesus, or would you like Barabbas? Well, who's Barabbas? We're told as much in verse 19. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So Barabbas is a revolutionary and he is a a murderer. Uh, He has started some insurrection. He's drawn some innocent blood in the process. Matthew will tell us that he is a notorious prisoner. Today we might call him an infamous terrorist. And so Pilate, here's the choice. You have your beloved Jesus and you have hated Barabbas. In his mind, certainly they will choose to have Jesus freed. And then he'll tell the religious leaders, well, you know, what can I do? My hands are tied. I have to release someone. The crowds choose Jesus. Therefore, I will release him. Well, what a shock it must have been, therefore, to Pilate, when the crowds shouted in verse 18, away with this man, that's Jesus, released to us Barabbas. They begin to shout for Barabbas. He's expecting them to say, well, great idea, Pilate. We want Jesus. And instead, they say, no, no, no. We'll send Jesus away, kill Jesus, but release for us the murderer and the terrorist and the revolutionary. When the people of God are offered their long-awaited Messiah, they choose a murderer instead. Pilate is stunned. Again, he argues for his innocence in verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. They refused it, as you see in verse 21. But they kept shouting, crucify! Crucify him! You can picture that crowd, can't you? This maddened, out-of-control, frenzy, mob, thirsting for blood. Crucify him! They shouted, Again and again. Can you imagine being in that crowd? Imagine those words ringing out in your ears. Imagine, imagine even shouting them in this context. We'll actually hear them again. Look again in verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. You, you, <laughs> you know, some, some things you see and hear, they stay with you, don't they? You just can't get them out of your mind, huh? It makes me wonder if, um, if in the days and months and weeks to come when they, they still heard that refrain that came from their lips, when they, years later, you wonder, they put their head down on the pillow in the quiet of that moment, was that tape replayed when the people of God called for the murder of the Son of God? In God's city, among God's people, incited by God's leaders, resounded the cheers of crucifixion for God's Son. Pilate is utterly perplexed, as you see in verse 22. Third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him deserving death. Once again, he says, I will therefore punish and release him. He wants to know, what what am I supposed to do with this man? Now, for three times, he says, what do I do with Jesus? Are you sure? Don't you want Jesus? What what, what has Jesus done? Why? What, What crime has he committed? And Luke, if you want the details of this trial between Jesus and Pilate, you, you need John's gospel. John fills in all the details, and it's very helpful. Matthew is as well. But Luke is very succinct, but he wants to drive on this one point. He wants you to hear the verdict. He's innocent. 
In fact, the more he examined him, the more clear his innocence became. Is that not true for you as well, Christian? You think Jesus is wonderful, and yet you go back to him, and you consider him one more time, and just when you think he can't get any better, you get blown away by his compassion or his power or his wisdom or, or his, his mercy to those who would oppose him. You're given this fresh look. It seems like Pilate keeps getting fresh looks of the innocence of Jesus, and despite his obvious innocence, they all want him killed. Verse 23 says as much. But they were urgent, Luke says, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And then we read the sad, sad note. And their voices prevailed. Pilate relents, verse 24. Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He caves. He commends Jesus with all the rest of God's people. This is, um, if it weren't so familiar, I think it would be stunning I mean, here's Pilate who stands before the accused and the accusers and is totally convinced of his innocence and yet delivers Jesus up. He, <laughs> let's be clear, the fact that Pilate declares Jesus innocent doesn't make Pilate less guilty for this crime. It makes him more guilty. It makes his role in Jesus' murder worse. At least the religious leaders thought Pilate, that Jesus had actually done something wrong. Pilate was fully convinced that he was innocent. And here we have this sinful man sitting in judgment of the Holy Son of God. And he finds him not guilty and condemns him to death so he could get on with his day. Or keep his job. He is a if you will, a corrupt politician who's just reading the polls, and he is willing to do anything, no matter how heinous, in order to get reelected. And I think it is a stark reminder, perhaps just by way of a footnote, but of a reminder that unjust political authority is wicked and abhorrent. To do whatever, what you know to be wrong in order to maintain your power is a great evil. And Pilate commits it. He's known for this. In fact, see if you can't fill in the blank. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. All the world knows Pilate for one thing. He killed Jesus. And yet, when we think about this, I, it's very helpful, isn't it? Not just to look at the sins of what people are doing, but to find yourself in it, I think. I wonder if we share part of Pilate's story. And what I mean by this, of course, we didn't condemn Jesus to die, but how many of us know Jesus to be innocent, right? We agree with that verdict, and yet, you know, we, we know what we should do with him. We know what is right, but we also hear these other voices, don't we? Don't you hear the other voices? Calling for you to do that which you know is wrong, calling you for you to sin, whether it be your flesh, whether it be your friends, inviting you into gossip and malice, whether it be your family calling for you not to do what you know you ought to do. And your heart, you know what is right. And yet, at times, we give in to the voice of the mob. Do we not? Maybe we can see our own sin here, just not to point our finger at Pilate. I mean, I wonder if there's times when we just wish Jesus would just go away for a little bit and leave you alone so you could do what you want to do. Just like Pilate, I wonder, what will you do with Jesus tomorrow, you go to work. What will you do with Jesus when you come home? Send him away for a bit or bow before him as your Lord in the midst of the voice of the crowd? You see in verse 23, it is their voice, voices that prevail, Luke says. Verse 24, Pilate granted their demand. 
Verse 25, we read, he delivered Jesus over to their will. Well, who, who is he speaking of particularly? Whose voice is in demand and whose will is this? Well, look back up in verse 13. You m- might not have noted this if we went by too quickly. And Pilate called together, note who he's talking with, the chief priests and the rulers and the people, the crowds. This is the first time we've seen them in the story. Remember, it was the Sanhedrin, the 71 Jewish leaders, the rulers who brought Jesus bound to Pilate early in that morning. But now it seems like by the time he returns from Herod, word has spread and the crowds have gathered. And they've come, as we've seen, not to defend Jesus, but to condemn him. And with one voice, uh, they cried away with this man, Luke tells us. Up to this point, the people have been a shield around Jesus, protecting him from these priests and religious leaders They're the ones who on Sunday, when he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, who shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah to the Savior. And now here on Friday, just a handful of days later, with loud cries, they're here shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. (laughs) It makes you think, how is that possible? How can you say Hallelujah on Sunday and crucify him on Friday. I, I wonder, well Luke doesn't tell us, I wonder if it is because there, there Jesus is and, and, and he's not teaching the temple and awing everybody. He's silent and he's bound and he's been beaten and he's opposed by seemingly every religious leader in the country. And you wonder if they must have reached a conclusion, well, he can't be the king after all, right? Because, because look what's happening to him. He, he can't be the, who he said he was. If God were with you, you'd be strong, right? If God were with you, he would be working through you. Look at you. You're defeated. You're weak. You're bloody. Where's your horse? Where's your army? You're a liar. You're not who you said you were. You deceived us. So yeah, crucify him. He is not who we thought. And they are looking straight in the face at the greatest thing God would ever do. And they despise it. Because it doesn't fit their categories. It's too weak and they turn on Jesus. And I wonder, as I've been thinking about that, I wonder if there are truths, once again, for us to apply to our own hearts. Let me, let me just offer you three quick points of application in light of this very fickle crowd. Number one, beware, my brothers and sisters, of worshiping Jesus on Sunday and being lured into rebellion by Friday. How many songs was it this morning that we sang, Hallelujah, what a Savior? At least twi- two songs, I believe it was. So we could, we could sing hallelujah, what a savior on Sunday and our mouths can be filled with lies and gossip on Wednesday and our hearts filled with greed on Thursday and our flesh long for that which is forbidden on Friday. Beware of your own fickleness. Secondly, beware of the fact that the way, that, beware of the fact that God often works through weakness and suffering. Beware of rejecting that idea. That's what I mean to say. Because sometimes there's some of us that, sometimes in our heart, say, well, if God were with me, then this could not, certainly this couldn't be happening, right? If God, God, God were in control, then this wouldn't be happening. If God was blessing me, then I wouldn't be here in this place. And we say, God can't be working through this trouble. When you're doing that, you're mocking God. You're turning on him. 
beware of rejecting the way God often works. Third, beware of the voice of the crowd. And please understand, and this perhaps goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways. The, the voice of our culture and the voice of God do not often agree. And so beware of what our culture says is popular. And my heart breaks to think of how many Christian churches in our land in a, in a desire, perhaps even a good desire, to be relevant to the culture in which they live, have abandoned the truths in which God has given them in order to be popular. Sometimes what is popular is also sinful. And when our whole world is shouting, that's good, that's good, that's good, it does not make it so. It quite often is the opposite. It is evil. And I'll tell you, the gospel offended people in Jesus' day. It is not going to please people in our day. Despised and rejected by man, we esteemed him not. That is the path of Christ. And it is our path to walk as well. They hated him. They hated it. And so they would kill him. I'm reminded once again, I'm sure I've shared with you, this truth last week, and if not, the week before, but I, I keep hearing it in my heart as I work through these messages, and that this idea that people keep saying, well, you know, if God would just show up, right, if he would write his name in the cloud, or if he would give me a vision or a sign, or, you know, then I would believe, then I would surrender, if he would just kind of prove himself to you, but please understand, here God comes in the human flesh. He could not have been more clearly visible, lived publicly in front of them, did miraculous activity over and over again, and what do they do with him? What do they do with him? Well, the apostles betray him, deny him, abandon him, the priests arrest him, they lie about him, they seek to kill him, the soldiers blindfold him, they beat him, they spit on him, they mock him, the crowd that once adored him turns on him, and Pilate sits on his tiny little throne, and after declaring him to be innocent, condemns him. As one pastor has said, on the one hand, we see the descendants of Abraham, the most favored of all people professing to be eagerly awaiting the appearing of the promised Messiah, now clamoring for his crucifixion. On the other hand, we behold a judge of one of the high courts of Rome, defying conscience and trampling upon justice. Never did human nature make such a contemptible exhibition. Never was sin more heinously displayed. Or as Apostle Paul says, the mind set on the flesh is at enmity with God. Injustice was done. That's who we are, and if that's true, what hope do we then have? We'll consider third and last this morning. The victory that is achieved, and we see Jesus is this substitute for us. Look at the last words of this trial recorded in verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. He releases the guilty man and he condemns the innocent man. You notice, by the way, in all this, Jesus is going along willingly. I hope that's apparent to you that all he does is make a simple confession and then he's silent. You remember Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? He simply says, you have said so. It is as you say, in other words, and then silent, submitting from there on to the way this, this is going. Jesus offers no defense. He calls no witnesses to testify to his righteousness. He raised no objections over the false accusations lobbied against him. And remember what those accusations were, by the way? 
There, there were two, weren't they? The, the, the religious leaders, they accused him of blasphemy, didn't they? And, and then the Roman leaders accused him of sedition. They said, well, Jesus, you are both a blasphemer and a rebel. I, I don't, I'm not sure that's coincidental. I look at my own life, or I look at the nature of sin, and it seems to coincide with that which Jesus is being accused of. You think about how our parents, first parents, plunged us into rebellion. Was it not blasphemy when they did so? Would the devil not say to them, when you eat of it, you shall be like God? Don't you want to be like God? Is that not blasphemy? Is that not idolatry? And yet at the same time, it's treason. For the Lord said, of, the, of all the trees you shall eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And yet, what do we read? So she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate. You see, sin in his heart is a rebellion against God's rightful rule. It's a blasphemy as we desire to take God's place. So do, when you think about sin, don't think, simply think about, you know, strange sheep and wandering prodigals. Think about blasphemous rebels. We are treasonous for our disobedience, and we are blasphemous in our idolatry. And it is the very charges that Jesus faces. Why? Well, my friends, I think he's standing in our place, is he not? He faces the charges for the things we have done. He who is not guilty and not guilty and not guilty is condemned for me. And he's condemned for you. Pilate asks, why? What evil has he done? What's the answer? None. But if I ask that of you, what evil have you done? If you know your own heart, you would say, well, we're going to be here a while. right? Too much to count. He takes our place and our condemnation upon himself so that we might avoid judgment. That's his heart. He wants us to avoid the judgment that is coming. In fact, we see it in this very interesting passage. And after Jesus is condemned, he's marched to the cross and he interacts with these women. Look there in verse 27. It says, And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And so Jesus now has been condemned. He's marching to the cross. And here's these women and, and you note verse 28, he calls them daughters of Jerusalem. That's important because you should not confuse them with Jesus' disciples who are from Galilee. So the women who we'll see a great deal in the later, in the later passages in Luke are, are Galilean. These women are, are from Judea or from Jerusalem. And so most likely, what the, who these women who are lamenting for Jesus, they're just kind-hearted women who are bewailing the death of this young man. Clearly, Jesus helped many people. It's very sad to see this happening. And we still see this, by the way, in the Middle East, don't we? When there's some you know, terrorist attack and, 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 and all the women come out and they begin to wail and lament. And we, we see this on the news. And it was happening back in Jesus' day, these women, I think, perhaps sensing the injustice that's being done to Jesus, their tender hearts go out to him. And they begin to cry and weep as Jesus marches to the cross. And of course, what do we expect Jesus to do? He maybe thank them for their sympathies. But instead, Jesus tells them that their tears are misplaced. Look what he says in verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And for your children. He turns to them and says, women, daughters of Jerusalem, you're weeping for the wrong person. You should be weeping for you. You should be weeping for your children. Which I, that's an extraordinary statement to make. He's going to be crucified in just a matter of minutes. He says, no, 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 don't weep for me. We weep for yourself. Why? Well, look what he says in verse 29. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren 
uh, and, and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. He says it's better to be barren in the coming days, which, by the way, in Jewish culture in particular, is a terrible circumstance. When Jesus here is clearly referring to that which he had prophesied in chapter 21, I believe it is, and he's prophesied time and again, by the way, of the destruction of Jerusalem that is coming. That hardship and judgment is coming. And it would come just about four decades later when Rome would besiege Jerusalem and destroy it. And and in doing so, hundreds of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem would either die through starvation or through the sword. And so Jesus says it would be better to have no children. It's one thing for you to starve to death. It's a whole different kind of suffering to watch your child do so. In fact, that suffering on that day will be so terrible that a quick death will be preferable, Jesus explains in verse 30. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. And then he emphasizes the trouble with this little proverb in verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? There's a parallel Jesus is drawing. Jesus is the green wood. Jerusalem is the old dry wood. And if this is the kind of suffering that comes upon this this green wood, the kind of burning that it will receive, what will happen when the old dead tree is lit on fire? And Jesus is warning that the judgment is coming. But as we've seen, whenever Jesus warns of the destruction of Jerusalem, he explains that the destruction of Jerusalem is just an echo, it's just a foreshadow of the final day of judgment that is coming. In fact, you see they're going to call for the mountains to fall on them. We read that elsewhere in Scripture about the day of the Lord. Consider Revelation 6. The Bible says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Jesus explains that to all who would not receive his mercy, his forgiveness, he says, don't weep for yourself. Don't weep for me, excuse me. Weep for yourself. As I understand, I'm a, I'm a dead man walking here. I'm, I'm going to die in just a matter of hours. But you're walking the same path. And one day, if you do not repent... You too will cry for mountains to fall upon you. Jesus is saying the wrath is coming. Wrath of God. And it is right and proper to weep. Notice, by the way, he's not talking to his enemies, per se. He's talking to the very people seeking to comfort him. Isn't that extraordinary? That the few few remaining people who seek to support Jesus, who are kind to Jesus, the sweet old grandmas who, who attend her hearts and in love, Jesus says, please understand, judgment is coming. And I, and I know this is, we don't like to hear this, but this is what Jesus is on Jesus' mind while he goes to the cross. And some of us, if we might think, well, judgment day, come on. <laughs> I mean, it's 2018, isn't it? Uh, that, that's antiquated, right? Aren't, aren't we beyond uh, the day of the Lord? Aren't we beyond judgment day? Why, why, why does God always have to be angry? I want a loving God, right? You heard that? Maybe you, maybe you, maybe you say that in your own heart. Well, there's about a, Hundred different answers to that question, but let me give you one. If you want a loving God, you need an angry God. What I mean by that is that loving people, by the very nature of their love, get angry. Not, not in spite of it, because of it. For instance, if you love your children, and then someone abuses your children, 
you will get angry, will you not? You will get mad. And if, if your children are abused and you don't get mad, what does that mean about you? If you just shrug your shoulders, oh well, too bad. Well, that means you're not very loving. It means you don't care. I don't know if you followed this, this terrible trial of this, this, this evil, wicked man, Larry Nasser, who abused hundreds of girls. And there was one point where the dad was there in court, and he was just feet away. Did you see this? And this man had, had abused three of his girls, and, and that dad leaped over the table and tried to attack Larry Nasser, only to be tackled seconds before by like four or five very large bailiffs. Why was he so angry? Because he loved his girls deeply. And the more you love, the more angry you'll get when injustice and evil is committed. And so I tell you, yes, there is a judgment day coming. And Jesus says, so don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. I wonder, have you ever done that? Sometimes, you know, sometimes we watch these senseless tragedies, like what occurred in Florida that has just been captured our nation's attention. And you, you watch the news and you listen to these families, these mom and dads who don't, who've lost their daughter or son, and you listen to these high school students kind of get together and just kind of explain what they endured. And if you let yourself, you'll weep, won't you? Some of you have wept this week. You, you weep for them, but you don't weep for yourself, right? Because after all, this won't happen to you, right? We're safe. You're in your living room. You're in your recliner, so you're not weeping for yourself. See, what Jesus is saying when he says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourself, he's saying, I am not another senseless tragedy on someone else. Right? Jesus is saying, the path I walk to judgment, and it is a path to judgment, that's a path that you too will walk. So you ought not just to weep for me as if I'm the only one who's going to experience it, but if you do not turn from your sin, you will experience it too. And the amazing thing is that he's walking to that judgment. Why? To spare us from the judgment of God upon ourselves. Therefore, how tragic would it be to feel sorrow for the suffering suffering Jesus endured and yet not receive the payment for your sin that his suffering accomplishes? Oh, poor Jesus, dying, terrible death. But what he's trying to do, he's trying to keep you out of a similar fate. And so weep, Jesus says, tears that lead to repentance. Weep tears like Peter that lead you back to Christ. Again, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I I wonder what you think about this. In fact, if, if, if I could ask you to do anything this week, this is what I ask. I'd ask for five minutes of your time. And, and you just spend it by yourself. I would ask you five minutes. You just spend five minutes answering this question. Should I be weeping for myself? Just five minutes thinking about, should I be weeping for my sin? Should I be weeping for my rebellion? Is Jesus right? Notice, by the way, even in talking about this judgment, he is reaching out in love to them. Right? He's marching to his own crucifixion. <laughs> and who's he thinking of? He's loving those who follow him. There he goes, marching to judgment as he takes our place. He is our substitute, of course. Jesus dies and Barabbas goes free. Do you know what uh, the name Barabbas means? Uh, you, you remember when uh, Peter gives the great confession and Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon. Do you remember what he said? Bar Jonah. You remember that? 
Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. So the Aramaic word bar just means son of. Or Remember uh, Barnabas, right? The son of encouragement. And so bar means the son, and Barabbas, uh, Bar-Abba. Can you hear it? Abba? You know what Abba means in Aramaic, don't you? Father. And so the name Barabbas simply means son of the father. I find that interesting because their choice is between two sons of the father. You have Jesus, the only son of God, and you have Barabbas, the son of the father. I, I wonder what he must have been thinking. I kind of hope he gets saved eventually. I, don't, I mean, we have no idea, but wouldn't it be interesting to talk to him? That you're sitting in prison and you know that you've been found guilty and you know that crucifixion awaits you and you know it's just a matter of time and you're terrified of this event and all of a sudden you hear this crowd gathering outside and you hear them shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And you must be thinking your, your time is almost up. You, your time is almost here. And then the soldiers barge into your prison cell and say to you, you may go free. <laughs> Can you imagine finding Barabbas the next day? And saying, Barabbas, wait, explain this to me. Because you were found guilty of murder and insurrection against Rome. We also know you're a thief. You are guilty. You were condemned. How is it that you are alive and free today? There is only one answer. And it is Jesus died in my place. He's the only man who could literally say that. That literally was my cross that Jesus took. He died in my place that I don't get punished. Jesus does. And I get to go free and Jesus does not. Barabbas receives the freedom that Christ deserves. And Christ receives the torture and ridicule and the execution that Barabbas deserves. And I'm telling you, that's the gospel. So what's, what is the heart of Christianity? That's it. That Jesus takes what I deserve and I get what he deserves. You see, I'm Barabbas too. And this is a whole church of Barabbi, right? That's who we are. We are sinners bound under the curse until the day of judgment. We are waiting for our eternal punishment. And there is nothing that you and I can do for our own release. We have no way of escape. And one day, the prison doors fly open, the chains fall off, and we are told, you may go free. For Christ has taken your place. Sometimes we sing of it, don't we? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the gospel. Christ is treated like you deserve so that you might be treated like he deserves. He is our substitute. And I, and I think so many people, they, they come to this point in their life where they come to church and think, okay, I, I, you know, I just got to, life isn't going well and I, I got kids and I want my kids to be raised right and I just need to redirect life. I need to get, get through some things. And right? they, they come to church, they begin to, to, to seek after God because I, I, I need to fix things in my life. I need to change things. The gospel is not, hear me clearly as we end this morning, the gospel is not that God wants to change you. The gospel is that God wants to exchange with you. He wants your place. 
He wants to pay your penalty. He wants to bear God's judgment upon himself. Jesus dies for all your sin, and you can't add anything to it. That's why our works of righteousness, our good works, don't do anything. You can't work for it. You're bound in prison, and all we have to do when the prison doors open and the chains fall off, what do we do? We get up and we walk out in faith. That's it. That's all we can do. We can't add anything to this salvation. We can't give anything. This is why it's hard to be a Christian. It has been said to be a Christian, all you need is nothing, but most people don't have it, right? Most people want to bring something. Well, what about this? What have I done this? What about if I do this? No, my friends, come to him with nothing but your chains. Come to him with nothing but your sin and say, I believe. Take my place, Christ, and I will take yours. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. What will you do with Jesus? Will you say this week, or even now in your heart, away with this man? Or will you say, Jesus, I gladly accept that you have taken my place, and I surrender my life to you. Our Father, we are thankful for our Lord, the sacrifice in which he has made. We are no better than this crowd. We too turn on him. After offering him our praise even, we're no better than Pilate. We too know that he is innocent and still give in to the voice of the mob. We're no better than Barabbas. Bound and imprisoned, waiting judgment. And what do we receive? Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Grace upon grace upon grace. Undeserving and yet unimaginably loved. We thank you. Help this truth to inflame our hearts in love for Christ. Help it to humble us that we would discard any pride and superiority and unforgiveness that we might walk here free, full of love in our hearts for what you have done for us. And we pray for our friend here that perhaps does not know Jesus Christ and is hoping that one day they stand before their maker with their own good record. We pray that even now by your spirit you would cause them to despair of such a silly idea. And that instead they would take the unimaginable gift of Christ's sacrifice for them. Do that even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.